Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. You've come to a wonderful section in this great book of Galatians that demands uh, more time than normally allotted. So we will look at verses 16 through 26 of chapter 5 over the course of the next two Sundays after this. Uh, Today, though, I want to give an introduction as we begin this passage, uh, an understanding of the Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit is. We'll see in the passage before us and in uh, Galatians 5, 16 and following, seven times references made to the Spirit. So instead of assuming that we understand what the Spirit does, who the Holy Spirit is, I want to spend some time today overviewing in brief form the ministry of the Holy Spirit and who the Holy Spirit is. There's much misunderstanding, much discussion about this among Christians. So let's look at, at least in a cursory way, who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. Uh, You will see in the passage before us, walk by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit, live by the Spirit. So it's important for us to have an accurate biblical understanding of who the Spirit is. Now you remember, we have come to a portion of the book where Paul is applying the truth of the gospel to everyday life. So he spends four chapters defending the truth of the gospel, how we might be made right with God. And he does so by clearly showing that we are justified before God or made right with God by faith in Christ and Christ's work. It's Christ's righteousness that makes us acceptable to God. That's the only way. And by faith in him, we're made we're put in union with Jesus. And now God accepts us because we're in Christ. So we meet God through Christ and by Christ, not by good works we do. See, people have crept into the church, as they do in churches today and in our thinking, and made us believe that there are things we can do to make God love us more, or that are meritorious, that God looks at and gives us value because of what we do. That robs what Christ has done, which is completely sufficient. But it's natural for us to pridefully want to say to God that we've done something, even a little bit, to make ourselves right with you. And the Judaizers came into the Galatian church and said, You can't just have faith in Jesus alone. You have to have faith in Christ. Plus, you have to do this, 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 and this. Then you'll be all right with God. So Paul writes in a very confrontational way to say, Foolish Galatians, what has bewitched you? He calls it to be bewitched when we add to the gospel. But he comes to chapter 5 and he starts to help us live out this new relationship we have with God. Since it's all about Christ and faith in him, Some might be tempted to say, well, it doesn't matter what you do then. But Paul says, not so. In fact, in another place in the scripture, he says, you're saved by grace. You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So good works are the outflow of a right relationship with God through Christ. Good works are obedience, not satisfying the desires of the flesh. Those things are ways in which we reflect Christ, the way we give God glory And only people who are first made right with God by faith in Christ can even begin to see sin defeated in their life. So we come to this wonderful passage, verses 16 through 26 of Galatians 5. Here as I read, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, 
fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this passage for this day and for your word. It teaches us of your Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the life of the child of God. Lord, we have been set free by the gospel of your grace through Christ. Lord, we recognize as your children we have a new identity. And Lord, we want to reflect the glory of Christ. We want to see it lived out that our chief end is to glorify you and to enjoy you. But Lord, we cannot do this in our flesh. We need your spirit. We see this command here in your word. Teach us about your Holy Spirit that we might understand what it means to walk by the spirit, to be led by the spirit, to see the fruit of the spirit manifested. Indeed, to live by the spirit. Pray this in Christ's name for your glory. Amen. The Holy Spirit, an important subject for Christians to study. The Spirit is throughout the scriptures, intricately involved in every aspect of God's will being played out. Yet there's much mystery about the Holy Spirit and indeed much debate, controversy even in the church about the Holy Spirit. And often in our tradition, we, we're kind of quiet because we don't know exactly what to say about the Spirit. Because he has such a, a back behind the scene role, it seems, as you read scripture. But yet we see clearly the power of God is manifested by the spirit of God's ministry. So we ought to study it. And before we dig into the 11 verses that I read, we need to know who the spirit is and what the spirit does biblically. Now, I'd like you to think for a moment of this picture. Uh, for many years, I visited Niagara Falls growing up in western New York. We've got uh, the pleasure and privilege of seeing it on a regular basis. In fact, I lived on, a, on an island, actually, in the Niagara River, 26 miles around, so it wasn't a tiny little island, but you'd go on and off the island via a bridge to get to the Buffalo area or to the Niagara Falls area. When you go over one of the bridges, every time you went over it, you would see the mist rise from the falls. So I can literally say I've seen the falls hundreds of times, at least from a distance, or I've been there. And I have known for a long time, like most of you, that waterfalls are one of the major ways we generate electricity. And I've known for a long time in my school days that Niagara Falls generated more power than any other source in the world for many years. And even to this day, it generates more power for the state of New York than any other source, including other multiple power plants that have been built. So lots of power to be harnessed by these falls. You see it and you see it's powerful. In fact, if you would visit it, you would look at it. And if you were not a trained engineer like many in our midst, you would probably wonder how... I see the power, but how does it go from that to electricity? How do we see that power actualized? I can't see it. Well, when I would go and stand there and look at it, I'd see thousands and thousands of gallons of water rushing over, frothy and just fast at that brink of the falls. The last mile is just 
violent in how it comes across and it cuts into the rock. Over the years, it takes, it, it, it wears down the rock. It's moving so fast. You would think, logically, that that must be where the power resides. That's where it's happening, where it's all frothy and foaming and, and moving quickly. That's got to be the power. I can see it. That's got to be it. But sometime not too long ago, I finally realized by reading all of the displays and studying the issues of how energy is produced, it doesn't happen at all where you can see it. In fact, it's miles upstream where these long tunnels have been dug, these conduits, miles upstream from the brink of the falls where you see all the action happen. And they go downhill underground to these power plants that have turbines that get turned by the water that's diverted upstream of the falls themselves. In fact, 50 to 75% of the water that would go over the falls is diverted into these hidden tunnels and conduits to make the electricity. The power is there, there's no doubt, but you can't always see it and pinpoint where it's coming from. I believe this is a good illustration of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not always all the the action that you see up here, or you think this is happening, or this show over there, or the way it's celebrated over here. It's more often the case the Holy Spirit works behind the scenes, consistently, constantly doing the work of the Father and then of the Son. But the power is not always where you see it. But make no mistake, it's there. The Holy Spirit figures prominently throughout Scripture. The Holy Spirit is God. Calvin was right when he noted regarding the work of the Holy Spirit, saying the work of the Spirit then is joined to the Word of God. But a distinction is made that we may know that the external Word, the Scripture, is of no avail by itself unless animated by the power of the Spirit. All power of action then resides in the Spirit Himself. How can you overestimate the importance of the Holy Spirit? For the reason why we know God is because God has revealed himself to us, namely through the prophets and the apostles and the deposit thereof, by the Holy Spirit into the scriptures. We have the Bible because of the Holy Spirit's ministry. Therefore, we know God and we know his son and we're related to God rightly by faith given by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, indeed, as Calvin says, provides all power of action. It resides with the Spirit himself. We can't underestimate our need for the Holy Spirit's work in carrying out the plan of God in applying the work of Christ. That's why the first verse that I read says, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. I can't just simply, my brothers and sisters, tell you, don't sin. Quit sinning. You're children of God. Look what God's done for you. You shouldn't sin anymore. That would do no good. The Spirit of God must give us victory. In fact, our battle against sin can only be won when walking by the Spirit. In verse 24 of the passage I just read, it says, those who belong to Christ Jesus, so those who are secure in the Father, those who are rightly related to God by faith in Christ, those who are His children, free from the power of sin in their lives now. Not that we don't sin, but the power does not enslave us like it once did. Verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, Let us also walk by the Spirit. Okay, then who is the Spirit and what does the Spirit do? An important question. Now, first of all, the Spirit of God is the third person of the Godhead. You'll notice that your notes passed 
my editorial team, and they did not notice. It's the third person, the Trinity, not the second. God is triune. We try to capture this and explain this. It's difficult, but the Scripture very clearly shows us the equality between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, even as difficult as it is for me to explain. People try to capture it all the time. In fact, if you look in the front of your Trinity hymnal, you'll notice that there's a, there's, there's a, a slight little pattern of a triangle. It's an attempt to show the triunity of God. And it fails because you can't capture it in words. And it's often the front line of a battle where other faiths will try to oppose Christianity. But it's very clear in Scripture that there's a co-equality between the persons of the Trinity, even as difficult as it is to understand. Within his own mysterious being, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Godhead, we would say. The designations are just ways in which God is God. That's the definition of God. You know, often I will get well-meaning invites to come pray with different faiths. And it's not that I'm not cordial or I'm not I'm impolite somehow. It's just that, really, what will we be doing? We're not praying to the same God. We're just not. There's not a same God that everybody prays to. There's the God that's revealed himself in Scripture, and we know that's the triune God. He is the only God. And so it's important to recognize God for who he is to the degree our minds can understand. Within the Godhead, there are three persons who are neither three gods nor three parts of God, but co-equally, and key here, co-eternally God. The Holy Spirit has always been just as the Father and the Son. Co-eternal. No one has created the Holy Spirit. God the Father didn't create the Holy Spirit. The Son did not create the Holy Spirit. Co-eternal. You know, our focus is often on the Father and the Son. And that shows the work of the Spirit. Because the Spirit consistently and constantly puts forth the work of the Father and the Son. But we shouldn't forget that the Spirit is God. It was interesting, not too long ago, a student that I had as, when I was a youth pastor, some eight years ago, uh, graduated from college recently and would send me pictures from time to time and these little, these little uh, links you would send to and they'd have an album of, of their friends. And I knew the friends by name because the person would tell me, he would say who these, his friends are, who he hung out with. And I tried to imagine, based on the pictures, who they were because he didn't tag them or identify them. I didn't know. And he'd always give me the name of three friends, but I would see another friend in the background in every picture. And so I asked him, who's the guy in the background? And he said, oh, yeah, that's so-and-so. See, in the background, always there, constantly around, a good friend, a good support, just wasn't up front where you could see him all the time. That's exactly what the Holy Spirit does. It's exactly the way it is in Scripture. The Holy Spirit's always there, in the background, putting forth the Father, putting forth the Son, but always there. That's the way the Holy Spirit works. And he's ascribed, rightfully so, by the biblical writers, all the same attributes that God the Father and God the Son have. Think of the knowledge of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11, for who knows the person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him. Then Paul says, so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So the same knowledge attributed to the Father is attributed to the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. The sovereignty of God is also attributed to the Spirit. Now, it is true that God the Father and God the Son send the Spirit to do the work, the will of God. But the Spirit does act sovereignly. In the same book of 1 Corinthians, in the 12th chapter, verse 10 and 11, where Paul is saying how the Spirit of God imparts gifts to each believer... 
says in others, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But then in verse 11, a very important verse about the gifts of the Spirit, but the Spirit himself, it says, all these, these gifts, are empowered by one and the same Spirit, and here's the key, who apportions to each one individually as he, the Spirit, wills. So the Spirit can work with sovereignty. A person can't override the will, the Spirit. The Spirit gives to each one individually as he wills. We can see that the Spirit of God has eternally existed. Hebrews 9:14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. God the Son and God the Father did not get together to create the Spirit to do the work. The Spirit always has been sent forth by to do the work, given the assignment by the Father and the Son. But the Spirit has eternally existed as well, and thus is God himself. All those attributes of knowing everything, of being everywhere, of being all-powerful, are also given to the Spirit. Where shall I go from your spirit? David wrote in Psalm 139. Or where shall I flee from your presence? Can't escape the spirit. God is everywhere. Knows everything. We read earlier these things in 1 Corinthians 2. God has revealed to us through the spirit. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. He knows it all. We cannot know it all, nor will we ever know it all. All powerful. Wonderful Advent passage in Luke 135, the angel said to her, Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High of God will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the Spirit of God comes to impart the power of God. Connected closely with the power of the Godhead is the Spirit. Very boldly, though, Scripture in Old and New Testament equates the Spirit with God. Make no mistake, the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep in creation in Genesis 1. But beyond that, the prophet Isaiah, who is looking ahead to the day when Jesus would come, the servant of the Lord, is how Isaiah references the second person of the Trinity. And Isaiah speaking is the mouthpiece of God. God, using the prophet speaking, speaks of the servant and speaks of the Spirit of God. Listen to Isaiah 42. The first verse of Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold. So God the Father says, Behold my servant whom I uphold. That's Jesus, my servant. My chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So already, Isaiah is talking of the triune nature of God in his work. You know what Jesus says right before he ascends into heaven. He says, commissioning us, Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus very clearly gives equality to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the commission. That's what makes it distinctive. Biblical Christianity, opposed to other forms or other religions that simply make God this singular being, this one force. Well, Christianity, thanks to the Holy Spirit, by the will of God, gives us clarity about what is true concerning God, that he indeed is equal with the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Turn in your Bibles just for a moment, if you want, to Titus 3. If not, listen as I read it. Titus 3 contains one of the most glorious three verses on the triune nature of God, but also the way the Trinity works 
to bring salvation. This is not a side issue or a fringe matter. This is very important to understand the work of God. In Titus 3, starting at verse 5, listen to what it says. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So he saved us, that's God the Father, not by works done by us in righteousness, so it's not something we contributed to be saved. He saved us, the Father, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, God's mercy, by, the way he does it, the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the way in which God saves us is by making us born again, regenerated by the Holy Spirit's ministry, whom, it says in Titus 3, 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified or made right with God, by grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Your very salvation, your very peace, while it's simple enough for a child to understand, trust in Christ and be saved, Make no mistake that it's complex in what God has done. The Father in His mercy has chosen to save you, and He does so by applying the work of Christ through the ministry of the Spirit. God is totally involved with the saving of sinners. He sent, the Spirit is, by the Father and the Son to do God's will when His disciples were freaked out at the idea that Jesus would be leaving them bodily. Jesus says in John 14, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit has promised to those believers that when Jesus ascends into heaven bodily, he'll then send the Spirit so that we would be reminded what he says, that he would illumine what has been said by Christ and that the word of God that we have, he would remind them of this. And in particular, for this era, the prophets are still existing In the first century, when the apostles were still there and they were receiving the word of God and writing the word of God, the Holy Spirit oversaw that whole process. Later, a chapter later in John 15, 26, when the helper comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the main ministry of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness about the Father and the Son and the message of what God has done in redemption. Revealing himself to bring glory to God. The Spirit is about the glory of God. He wants to stand behind and and, and show with a spotlight on the Father and the Son for God's glory. That's the helping ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Spirit's about. And too often we get this turned around today. There's such an accent done on the, the seemingly spectacular works of the Spirit. When the Spirit of God, I would suggest, biblically speaking, would be much more content to be behind and show forth the Father and the Son. That's the real ministry of the Spirit the Spirit is about doing. What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, just that. In fact, you know that if if you're driving on Highway 69 south at night and you look to your left, to your west, you can see the steeple about 179th Street. It's that bright and lumen. You just see this, this light steeple. Clear your eyes or focus so you can't avoid seeing it when you're driving down the highway. And if you get closer at night, it's still neat. I still think this is pretty cool how these little lights strategically placed with little little shields on them point up towards the steeple. And so it, it puts the focus, the light. You would just you, you look up when you see it. These lights have this effect. And the closer you get to the building, the less you notice the lights, but the more you can see the it focus, the steeple itself. 
Well, I would suggest to you that the Holy Spirit functions in much the same way with God the Father and God the Son. You don't notice the light so much, but the light's doing its work and it's casting its light. It's focusing upon the Father and the Son and you see it. It's almost like you're standing there and over your shoulder, this light is shown and you see the Father and you see the Son. That light over your shoulder is thrown by the Holy Spirit. So we can see the Father and the Son clearly. It's as if the Spirit stands behind us, illuminating it what we need to see before us. J.I. Packer, capturing a similar illustration in a book he wrote, said, The Spirit's message to us is never, Look at me. Listen to me. Come to me. Get to know me. But always look at Him. See His glory. Listen to Him and hear His word. Go to Him and have life. Get to know Him and taste His gift of joy and peace. I say this in preface to what we'll be studying. If God says walk by the Spirit, we've got to know what the Spirit does. The Spirit says, look to Him. So, in essence, the gospel message that brings us to faith is the same message we look to to walk by the Spirit to continue to see progression in victory over sin. That's what it is to walk by the Spirit. What does the Spirit do? He points to the Father and the Son. It's not a magical thing you wait around for until you get a tingly and then, oh, I'm I'm in the Spirit. No, the Spirit has given us the Word of God, illumines the Word of God. You could not understand this if it were not for the Spirit. And walking by the Spirit is walking by what the Spirit has given us. How He's illumined the Father and the Son. That's walking by the Spirit. Too many people are standing around for God to zap them with the Spirit when they have the Word of God, the Word of the Spirit there, and they leave it alone, waiting for something to happen. Well, you'll never walk by the Spirit that way. This is important to understand the work of the Spirit. This is why Jesus says, When the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He's speaking to men who would become the apostles and pen God's word. And this is a promise that he would inspire them to write scripture, and then that deposit we would have and the church would have until Jesus comes back. The ministry of the Holy Spirit. Giving it to us and illuminating it for us. He performs divine works according to God's will. That's what the Spirit of God does. We see that He does so in creation itself. In fact, not just the general creation of everything, but even personally, Job says, the Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. But beyond that creation, there is the regeneration that I want us to really think about and appreciate. To be born again, the very language Jesus uses in John 3, to be born again, that new birth, that regeneration, that happens as a ministry of the Holy Spirit by the will of God. Not something we do. We don't get ourselves born again. God borns us again by the Spirit. He's talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, how do I be right with God? Just like everybody asks today. How can I know God? He says, you must be born again, Jesus says to him. How can I be born again? Good question. Nicodemus is right to ask it. How can I be born again? Guess what? You can't be. You've got to be born of the Spirit. It's the only way you can be born again. Can I enter my mother's womb a second? No, you can't. You've got to be born again. And in John 3, verse 7... Regarding the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. No one is born again by their own choice. We know this because it says further in other places, but particularly we read earlier, Titus 3, 5, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Well, you say, but I chose Jesus. Listen, I believe that. But what really happened 
is that you were born again and you chose Jesus. You were born again and you grasped Christ. You were born again and you had faith in Christ. You were born again and you believed. That's what happened. Now, on the surface, it feels like I've chosen. But it says in Titus, not because of works done by us in righteousness and choice, volition is a work. Absolutely. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. You know why? Think of it. I'm really happy that my son is making good choices. What do you mean? He's doing works really well. He's making the right choices. It's an effort, no doubt. And you cannot make that effort unless the Holy Spirit of God makes you. That's what the Spirit does. He regenerates you. And so when you came to Christ, you came to Christ because the Holy Spirit of God raised you from death unto life. Then you can see. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Yes, the moment we first believed. But we believed because at that moment the Spirit gave us life. But the Spirit doesn't stop there. He gives us special abilities. He gives special abilities to Christians. There are several passages in the New Testament, one in Corinthians and one in Romans, that tell us of specific special abilities that the Spirit of God gives to people who are born again. He regenerates, but then he gives special gifts. It's sometimes difficult to discern between talents and gifts. But we might say at least that spiritual gifts could be talents or something totally new that God gives the believer when they become uh, born again. But there's something for the purpose of bringing glory to God as you exercise those gifts in your life by God's grace. And everybody has a different gift, maybe multiple gifts. But God does it for the common good. In fact, when he's listing out these gifts in 1 Corinthians 12... He says very clearly that each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. There's no private spiritual gifts. That's not even in the definition. Gifts of the Spirit are for the edifying of the body. That's why they are given by God. And there's all sorts of controversy about which gifts are still in practice today or God's still giving. But recognize that what governs all of this is that it's not something man conjures or calls upon. It's the Spirit of God imparting, according to 1 Corinthians 12:11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So the Spirit of God working through people specially gifted to bring glory to God by edifying the body. Spirit of God illuminates Scripture for us, illumines it for us, brings it to our remembrance. This is the promise of Jesus before he ascends. But remember what it says in 1 Corinthians in another part of that great book, that man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, the message of the Scriptures, there is a reason why natural man will read it and scoff or be confused or reject it. It's because natural man cannot understand it. It's not just a matter of rationale. Well, read it and it makes logical sense. This is a living and active word. This means that the Spirit of God must make it real, must apply it, must bring conviction to us, help us to understand it, to accept it. That's a gift of the Spirit, a work of the Spirit. He illumines Scripture, brings it to our remembrance, and He will guide us in all truth, according to John 16. He convicts us of our sin by it as we read it. He fills us in the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's not secondary to our coming to Christ. The moment you 
are born again, the Spirit fills you. This is why it says also in John, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The Spirit is with you and dwells you and never leaves you. It's true that there are special anointings of the Spirit that help us fulfill particular tasks at particular times. But every Christian is filled with the Spirit of God. As God gives us His Spirit. And it says wonderfully that He has given us the Spirit to preserve us. In John 5, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. He who does not come into judgment but is passed from death into life. No more judgment for the one who's sealed by the Holy Spirit. And in Ephesians 4, I do, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. For the day of redemption, the sealing ministry, the preserving ministry, the keeping ministry of the Holy Spirit does not lose any that the Son has purchased by His blood. No one is lost who is sealed by the Spirit. Now we can grieve the Spirit, which we'll see here in Ephesians speaks of, but it's the Spirit who brings us conviction about grieving the Spirit. You can see just this very simple overview of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which I've done not nearly enough time on is so important if we're ever going to understand what it means to walk by the Spirit. So for the next two weeks, we'll unpack verses 16 through 26, 11 verses. But I hope now our background is set, that we see when there are seven references to the Holy Spirit in these 11 verses, when we see walk by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit, live by the Spirit, hopefully when we see it, we'll now have, as our foundational understanding, a right and clear thinking about the Holy Spirit in the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I want to close by just reading the first two verses and the last verse of the text that I've already read, already read which we'll study the next two weeks. Galatians 5.16 But I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And then verse 24 and those who belong to Christ Jesus, you who by faith in Christ have faith in Christ, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And please see verse 26, this wonderful outcome of walking by the Spirit in the community of faith especially. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. See, pride is what makes us think we contributed to our salvation to begin with. Pride is the same thing that messes up the community. And the only way that pride can be put at bay, that we can stop being so selfish and self-centered, is if we're walking by the Spirit who brings glory to the Father and the Son, not to ourselves. That's what it means to walk by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word, giving us this hour to study it. I pray that we would meditate upon it. And Lord, with words that Andrew Murray once used, I also pray that not a single moment of our lives would be spent outside the light and love and the joy of your presence. Not a moment without the entire surrender of ourselves as vessels for you to fill us full of your spirit. That we'd be sensitive to the leading of the spirit. That we would obey your word by your spirit. Lord, that we would sense your love through the spirit. I pray, God, that we would be a people who look forward to seeing what it means to walk by the Spirit, that you would bring glory to yourself through us sinful people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and you're sanctifying now till the day of redemption comes. Thank you for this. We look forward to this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in our hymnals together.
2534. Let's stand and sing as we prepare hearts and minds for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. 534. Let's sing verse 1 and verse 2 of O for a closer walk with God. <laughs> 